Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, and welcome, as always, to When Diplomacy Fails. This... As usual, is another installment of Britain Goes to War. But, as usual, once again, we have a few little issues of housekeeping to get through before we properly get into the meat of the episode. So, let's get down to it. First, I would like to remind you guys that this is a podcast within the Agora Podcast Network, and that this month, in the month of April, we'll be promoting Travis J. Dow's vast array of history podcasts, and... He has informed me firsthand that the best way to basically discover all that he has to offer is to go to www.podcastnick.com, and there you'll discover podcasts that you're already aware of, I'm sure, such as the History of Germany and the History of Alchemy podcast, as well as the Bohemican, and many, many others, which, once you discover them, you will not want to stop listening. So please, go and check those out. That again, Travis J. Dow and PodcastNick.com. Okay, second, and another more exciting bit of news. Recently I did an episode for Royfield Brown's 10 American Presidents podcast. Some of you may be aware of this already because I made an announcement on the actual When Diplomacy Fails Facebook page, but for those of you that aren't really in tune with those kinds of things, I'd really recommend you go and check that out. And if you haven't subscribed to 10 American Presidents... I would really recommend it because it has a great number of episodes looking at different angles of the American presidency and not necessarily just the presidents themselves. And they're also read by a great many distinguished podcasters, such as, well, myself, obviously, but also Dan Carlin and Mike Duncan, among others. So, yeah, go and check that out. And just for the record, the episode is on the Monroe Doctrine, just in case you thought it couldn't get any better. Third and finally, and this is a bit of a disappointing message in a way for you guys, because this is the official announcement to say that I will not be releasing an episode after this one for another three weeks. I do this for a variety of reasons, mostly because my stress levels are at an all-time high, but also, and I suppose this is the silver lining of this announcement, I'm planning something big for the end of this month. You're probably kind of got an idea of where this is going, considering where I'm from and what kind of centenary this is building up to, but in case you didn't know, the Irish Easter Rising of 1916 
is going to soon encompass a lot of When Diplomacy Fails' time. I'm really excited, and I can't wait to see you guys there. But we won't be releasing episodes on that until like the end of this month, the 24th or so, because that's when the actual centenary takes place. Unless, of course, you're the Irish government, in which case it took place on Easter of this year, but that's another story altogether. Yeah, so those are the three pieces of housekeeping that we really had to get through. With all that being said and done and out of the way, I'm delighted to introduce you to the next instalment of Britain Goes to War. Thanks, enjoy the show, and I'll see you in about three weeks or so. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 24. It had been an eventful year for Benjamin Disraeli's second premiership, and it wasn't over yet. With the approach of spring in 1878 came new responsibilities at home and abroad for the government to tend to, but one minister was notable in his absence, Lord Derby. For months, Derby had been the sole force behind a policy of peace. He had sought to prevent Britain stumbling to war in the name of principles which were anathema to conservative thought, yet Derby had been overruled. His reputation was destroyed in the conservative press, and his colleagues had distanced themselves more and more from his way of thinking. Britain, much like the rest of the world, was undergoing a series of changes herself. Her outlook was becoming more ambitious, more imperialistic, while issues which had been developed over the centuries since the end of the Napoleonic Wars were now bubbling to the surface and coming to be seen as the paramount issues at stake. National honour, prestige, expansion, strength, public approval, all of these were entities which to Darby could be glossed over or ignored depending on the situation. They were not, to him at least, tangible in the sense that they mattered more than the pursuit of genuine conservative principles such as caution, good governance, consolidation or isolation from foolish entanglements. Unfortunately for Darby, he had become the first casualty in this societal change. Almost in the space of a couple of years, the entities to which Darby paid scant attention to had become the most pressing, while the principles which defined his Conservative Party were now criticised as timid, weak or unpatriotic. One's patriotism and strength as a statesman was now measured by how far one was willing to push one's rivals overseas, or by how willing one was to wage war in the name of their nation's name. To Darby, this change was both incomprehensible and irreconcilable with how he felt as a statesman. He could not lead if this was the direction that the British wanted him to lead them to, and so he had stepped down. By mid-April 1878, the absence of Darby was already being felt. Although Lord Salisbury is Darby's replacement in the Foreign Office could have dramatically altered the march of events, he did not act as rashly as posterity would have perhaps expected. That being said, without the old links Darby had cultivated, such as the one Darby had had with the Russian ambassador Peter Shuvalov, 
tensions had begun to mount between Russia and Britain again. On the 17th of April, it was announced that Britain had mobilised her reserves and was preparing to ship Indian sepoys to the Mediterranean. This was what happened when diplomacy took a back seat, but all was not lost or determined to go to war. On the 1st of April, so before that announcement, Salisbury had sent a circular telegram to all of Britain's ambassadors serving abroad, with instructions for how they should represent British policy within to the governments that they communicated with. Salisbury had made it clear that certain elements of the recently published Treaty of San Stefano between the warring Russians and Turks would be open for debate, while others were considered intolerable to Britain. What Salisbury perhaps didn't account for as a factor for saving the peace and leading to the now famous Congress of Berlin was that Russia's dry Kaiserbund partners would find San Stefano just as unpalatable as London had. St. Petersburg was awash with chaotic scenes throughout April as Chancellor Gorchakov tried to come to terms with the worsening Anglo-Russian relationship while he also had to ignore the intrigues of Nikolai Ignatiev and balance this against his own dislike for what he saw as the overly accommodating policy of Peter Shuvalov, who remained in London. Gorchakov wanted to strike an even balance between the two policies, but he was now ill and infirm, and he refused to allow Ignatiev to hijack his years of Russian policymaking. Ignatiev had been the ambassador at Constantinople since 1864, and during that time he had been meant to foster the grounds for a conflict with Russia, which was achieved, and pave the way for a Russian conquest of the Eternal City, which was not achieved. By this stage, the Russian army had been decimated by the disease, even though it was mere miles from the walls of Constantinople. The Russian finance minister, on the other hand, had warned Gorchakov that the state finances could not support another campaign, while the Russian war minister parroted this opinion. Faced with such challenges, the Russian Tsar, Alexander II, was more susceptible to compromise, but he also faced mounting pressure from his allies in the Dry Kaiserbund as well. Neither Germany nor Austria wanted to see Russia carve out for itself a de facto vassal state of Bulgaria, nor did they think it wise to cripple Turkey so completely. Otto von Bismarck had since changed his tune where the Ottoman Empire was concerned. Where once he had lamented any preoccupation with Turkey as a foolish distraction, he remained convinced of this, but had accepted that because it would concern Austria, it would have to concern Germany as well. He had already offered Berlin as the place where Europeans could negotiate an end to the tensions and a true end to the war in February. It merely remained for Russia and Britain to take up his offer. Despite the stance of Bismarck, the road to the Congress of Berlin was paved with uncertainty. Of major importance to both Disraeli and Salisbury was, if a Congress was to be pursued, that Russia and Britain had to state what they would give ground on before meeting, or else it would just be a waste of time to meet in person. Bismarck also shared this view. Armed with the belief that the Russians would negotiate now that they were faced with such opposition, tensions and challenges from all sides, Salisbury now had to impress upon Disraeli the importance of compromise. Russia was willing to give ground on the nature of Bulgaria's borders as well as the control of the Aegean Sea, but sticking points remained for Russia. The Tsar was adamant that the Turks would not be allowed of any garrison within Bulgaria, while Montenegro and the Balkans would also have to be granted full independence. 
as compensation for the halting of their expansionist aims. The Russian court would also have to be allowed to absorb minor Asian holdings like Kars and Batum, as well as a chunk of Bessarabia along the Black Sea. In return for this, Salisbury was able to negotiate the necessity for Britain in having her own compensation, Cyprus. Lord Derby would surely have thrown his hands up in the air in frustration had he been made aware of it. That old island-based chestnut, which has so hounded and irritated his senses as a conservative statesman, had been brought to fruition. Britain would be granted Cyprus as a base, from which they would protect the Ottomans. Furthermore, in return for persuading Disraeli to agree to the aforementioned terms, Salisbury had to agree to an Anglo-Turkish alliance which would guarantee her against future attack. This was something that the Prime Minister insisted on, and despite his own views on the subject of Ottoman independence, Salisbury relented. Though his primary goal had been to hold back Russia and not to prop up the Ottomans, Salisbury recognised, or at least was beginning to recognise, the need to compromise, as well as the dependence of one issue upon the other. It took another month and a half for everything to be hammered out, but by the 30th of May 1878 an Anglo-Russian protocol was signed, and the basis for the Congress to take place in Berlin had been established. From the 13th of June to the 13th of July 1878, representatives from Britain, Russia, Austria, Germany, France and Italy, as well as minor Balkan states like Greece, Serbia, Romania and Montenegro, with the notable exclusion of the Ottomans from either grouping, all sat down and discussed how this latest conflict would be resolved. In a sense, it is an event which we've been building up to for some time. For the past episodes I sat down to write, I assumed that I would on that occasion be writing about the Congress, but alas, something always came up. Whether it was Lord Darby's career, Disraeli's intransigence, or my insistence on providing you with detailed speeches from the Houses of Parliament at the beginning of the year of 1878, now we have finally arrived at the great event. I should probably issue a warning before we go any further. Because this is Britain Goes to War and not a survey of Europe, or even Bismarck's career, we aren't going to spend any longer than this episode on the topic of the Congress of Berlin. The Congress will be treated by us as it was by Disraeli and his ministers, as a stepping stone towards getting what they wanted. We have neither the space or time, unfortunately, to dwell on its inherent issues as much as I would like to, and I feel as though you could do a seriously good study of the event through podcast format if you were so inclined, hint, hint. As a great diplomatic event, it is important because it was the first time since the Congress of Vienna that Europe had come together as one to discuss such troubling circumstances. Just like in Vienna, it had concerned the aftermath of a war, and just like in Vienna, Britain was one of the key movers within it. We are going to limit our focus mainly to the Anglo-Russian participation within the Congress, as well as its immediate aftermath in European relations. We could, it is true, take some time here to explore all the issues which had their genesis here, but would lead to conflict in the future, such as the annexation of Bosnia, the nationalisation of the Balkans, seen in empowering Montenegro, the further collapse of Ottoman power and the cementing of the Russian Slav policy in the European politic. But instead, we shall be lazy, and merely allude to these as they become relevant or necessary. With all that being said, it is important to set some context. Russia is represented in Berlin by Chancellor Gorchakov, 
though the Chancellor by this time was old and infirm, and only managed to persuade the Tsar to allow him to attend by reasoning that he wanted one last hurrah before his retirement. Gorchakov was balanced by Shuvalov, an interesting choice considering what we know of the man. It signified that Russia did want to treat, for had the Tsar chosen instead to nominate Ignatiev as Gorchakov's second, the results would certainly have been different, and the ambitions of the former would definitely have produced a different result. It also brings an interesting what-if question to the fore. Had Darby still been in play, the act of meeting with his Russian friend in Berlin, in Shuvalov, may have dramatically altered the nature of the Congress's results. Though, if these results led to a better Anglo-Russian understanding after the Congress, is also up for debate. In any case, in Britain's case, we know from posterity that Disraeli chose to represent Britain at the Congress, but what you may not have known was that Salisbury accompanied the Prime Minister to Berlin as well. Though Disraeli's spoken French was less than stellar, and I can sympathise, for the summer months that the Congress lasted, the aged Prime Minister had most of the Congress's participants in the palm of his hand, including Bismarck. Contrary to Gorchakov's wish, the Congress was to be Disraeli's last hurrah, and not his. Indeed, in a sense, the Congress can be seen as the place where old men played. John Charmley noted that it resembled a home for geriatric individuals since the major reps were in their 70s or late 60s. It is easy to forget this when we learn of Disraeli's ability to hold foreign dignitaries in rapture or negotiate for days on end, that these men had been in their posts for decades, and that the current status quo of Europe was in many ways shaped by their idiosyncrasies and personalities. Having evicted his former friend from the cabinet in the name of a stronger policy, Disraeli and Salisbury had all but followed his line, albeit with a few inflammatory adjustments, by the time they joined their fellow Europeans for the Congress. War had not come about because, at the end of the day, neither the Prime Minister nor the Foreign Secretary had been willing in the end to risk it, and both could reason that a Congress was capable of providing the satisfaction Britain needed, and the victory its people longed for. The last time Disraeli had seen Bismarck, it had been 1862. The two men had, by that time, yet to have seen the so-called top of the greasy pole. That was before Germany, before so many wars, before Beaconsfieldism. Now the two men led their respective nations, but their respective health had not let them forget it. Disraeli by this stage was 73, a martyr to bronchitis and asthma, as John Charmley put it, and had actually been advised to stay at home for the good of his well-being. Disraeli had declined, but upon his arrival in Berlin with Saul. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Osbury on the 13th of June, 1878, he would have probably have been relieved to note that the Times had not been particularly kind to Bismarck either. Rather than sympathise with the German Chancellor, Disraeli instead noted his shock at the change in the man since he had last seen him 16 years before. Then he was a very tall man with black hair, a piggish nose and a waist like a wasp. Now he is giant, his face ruddy, his locks and head silvery white. On the whole, however, a very effective appearance. The well-known portrait of Bismarck as the greying father of European diplomacy is easy to conjure in our minds, many images of it exist, and to Disraeli, though this image was somewhat surprising, he recognised its effectiveness. There was a difference between age and ageing. Bismarck, despite his age, remained well able to keep pace with his younger rivals, a practice he had become well versed in thanks in large part to Germany's political atmosphere, which required the Iron Chancellor to remain one step ahead at all times. Though he had not grown old particularly gracefully, and though he had the tendency to complain about his nerves and digestion, quote, usually before devouring a massive evening meal washed down with copious amounts of champagne and stout, after which he would settle down and smoke too many cigars, end quote. As John Charmony put it, this image of Bismarck and the force of personality he was able to bring to the table was nonetheless impressive. Aside from the older appearance of both men, neither Bismarck nor Disraeli had much in common, and yet the Prime Minister would need the German Chancellor on side if he was to come away with a result resembling success. Disraeli approached the venture with an admirable determination that enabled him to force the importance of his position on others, as well as overcome his own infirmities. The first meeting of the Congress would be an important one. It was Disraeli's only chance to make a first impression that would convince Bismarck of his sincerity and seriousness, when the Iron Chancellor began proceedings mostly set against the British Prime Minister. This bias against Disraeli was not, as some historians have sought to claim, because Disraeli was Jewish, since no evidence exists to paint Bismarck as any more or less anti-Semitic than anyone else that didn't like Disraeli, and there was a lot of people who didn't like Disraeli. Instead, it was for the more practical reasons that, for months on end, Bismarck had been subject to a series of headaches from one corner of Europe which continually refused to compromise and preferred instead to ratchet up the tensions, and the name which was constantly bandied about as the cause of such a policy was Disraeli's. It is useful to recall, as John Charmley does, 
in this instance, Disraeli's very first speech in the House of Commons, when he had stood up dressed in showy finery and adorned with adorable ringlets, to present a speech which saw him be laughed at and jeered until he sat down. The young Benjamin's prophetic statement at that time of his humiliation, when he was said to have grumbled as he sank into his chair, that the time will come when you will listen to me, serves as an excellent measuring stick for how far the conservative outsider had come. Born into a family and determined to take a course which was without precedent for men of his class, or race if you want to pull that card, Disraeli set a new standard for ambition and achievement when he reached the pinnacle of his party in 1868 and again in 1874, though the latter date is the most notable when you consider what he had to do to win. Disraeli can even be credited for creating the two-party system, because without his force of personality to resurrect the Conservatives in the early 1870s, the party may have well splintered off or disappeared. The men in Disraeli's cabinet knew that they owed a lot to their Premier for ensuring that the Conservative Party achieved its first majority in a generation. It was also accepted that the time of holding office until the Liberal Party was ready for office again was over. The two-party Conservative-Liberal rivalry, which would take Britain almost up to the First World War without any major changes, except one notable one which we'll encounter soon, was established in these years. Thus, when Bismarck looked at Disraeli as just another common British official in the first instance, or more likely as the cause of all of his problems, he would certainly have missed the magnitude of Disraeli's achievements. Despite the slant my narrative has taken in the past, Disraeli was one of the most incredible characters and important statesmen of the 19th century, and considering the crowded century that it was, such an achievement is significant. This brief background should serve merely to remind us what Disraeli was capable of, and why that infamous line uttered by Bismarck of, that old Jew, he's the man, was said by Bismarck in the first place. After years of hearing of the exotic premier second-hand, Bismarck was finally face to face with the man after so much time, who had redefined so many aspects of British political life by 1878. Faced with this, it was perhaps inevitable that not just a working relationship, but a level of mutual respect between the two titans of statesmanship emerged. The unfortunate third wheel, or gooseberry as my mother would say, in this ideal equation was the Russian Chancellor Gorchakov. Gorchakov possessed none of the significance but all of the ambition that Disraeli and Bismarck had, and to both men the Russian was a hindrance on negotiations, not a help to them. While Disraeli and Bismarck concluded most of their evenings in each other's company, smoking numerous cigars and no doubt recalling the many colleagues they had to sacrifice to get this far, Gorchakov kept himself separate from the other two, neither trusting Disraeli nor liking Bismarck all that much. Salisbury described Gorchakov as an insignificant little old man, with the presence that materially complicates matters. Regular bouts of illness meant that Gorchakov had to be repeatedly caught up on proceedings, which he insisted on in person at the beginning of each meeting he attended. This, of course, required a lengthy recalling of negotiations, wherein Gorchakov commented on everything that had already been agreed to, and caused much irritation for Bismarck and company. Gorchakov insisted that, Russia only made such grand sacrifices because of her love of peace, just as she had waged the whole war to help the Near Eastern Christians. Russia was pursuing no selfish or secret ends. To a pragmatist like Bismarck, this pious moralizing gave him a great pain in the face. 
and during one of Gorchakov's many wasteful speeches, he was said to have noted down, Pompous, Pompo, Pump, Po. A note to the fact, as Charmody understood, that Bismarck considered Gorchakov nothing more than a clown. But it would be wrong to present Gorchakov as the only individual that faced challenges in Berlin. Disraeli, for his part, had always been a poor linguist, and since the language of the Congress was French, he often faltered when communicating specific points. To overcome this obstacle, an amusing scene ensued which saw the British ambassador to Germany, Lord Odo Russell, who regularly sat in on the proceedings, try to persuade Disraeli to speak in English instead. Disraeli, of course, was sensitive to his own shortcomings, so Russell couldn't simply tell him that he stank at French, since this would make the Prime Minister more defiant. Instead, Russell stated that the French corps, diplomatique in particular, were dismayed to learn that the British Prime Minister would be speaking in French, since they, among others, Russell insisted, had been looking forward to hearing the greatest living master of English oratory address the Congress in his native language. Historians aren't quite sure whether Disraeli accepted the compliment or took the hint, but either way, Disraeli was fortunate that despite his impediments, he, like other French-deficient British Prime Ministers of the past, and present, and future, were perfectly capable of communicating through their manner as much as their speech. Disraeli and Salisbury had prepared the ground for Berlin well, though, especially in the case of the latter, who had ensured that a number of protocols and cases for common ground with the Russians existed before even going to Berlin in the first place. Still, difficulties inevitably emerged. When it was revealed on the 14th of June, barely at the Congress's beginning, that Bessarabia and Batum had been ceded to Russia in private, Salisbury and Disraeli shrugged it off in public. But in private, they both agreed that they could not compromise on many other issues for the sake of Britain's reputation. Thus, both the Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary were breathtakingly stubborn in their intransigence over the issue of Bulgaria's borders, which continued to be a subject for debate right up until the end of the Congress. Impressing upon the Russians how serious he was, led Disraeli to create one of the most iconic standoffs of the Congress, wherein he informed Bismarck that a special train was on standby to take him back to London for the sole purpose of declaring war on Russia should the Russians not back down. This did the trick, it seemed, but probably only because the Tsar had already sent strict instructions to compromise in the weeks before. As far as Alexander II was concerned, Bulgaria was not worth the trouble of setting Europe against Russia. Particularly, if that country of Bulgaria could be naturally persuaded to fall into the Russian camp out of national sympathy in the future. Korchikov and especially Shuvalov were keen to demonstrate that they were willing to compromise on the issue of Bulgaria, but it is not clear whether, as some historians have claimed, this was because they feared Disraeli's threats of his war train, or because the Tsar had simply told them to give ground. In all likelihood, it was probably a mixture of both. In addition to Bulgaria's compromises, Disraeli and co. were able to secure Turkish ownership of eastern Rumelia, which was a critical strip of territory to the immediate south of Bulgaria that would insulate the Ottomans from further attack and protect the city of Adrianople from Russia. Turkey was allowed to administer eastern Rumelia as a de facto vassal state, and this meant that, according to Disraeli, Turkey in Europe was saved. But the Turks, interestingly, were not consulted on any of these points, and as they protested about the shrinking nature of their dominions and the terms in which they would now be governed, 
a terse warning from Bismarck to accept what they were given, was all the comfort that was handed to them. With this clear lack of consideration for Ottoman sovereignty was the implication that Turkey depended on interested European powers to survive. This implication would haunt both London and Constantinople, and would also lead to the perception in the not-too-distant future that Turkey was vulnerable to attack, a perception that would cause a rake of problems in the years before the First World War. Another aspect of San Stefano which Disraeli and Salisbury would have a much harder time negotiating was the Asian points that the treaty covered, specifically Kars and Batum, both of which had been seized upon by the British conservative press at home as critical objectives to be saved. This could be balanced by Disraeli's glowing reports of his own success that were sent home, in which he described himself as speaking thunder to Gorchakov and criticising Count Andrasi for going into too much detail over Bulgaria's borders. As he told the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Stafford Northcote, Disraeli was brought forward as the man of war on all occasions in order to speak like Mars. The press and public did not like to hear much of compromise, and so did not care much for revelations that the diplomatic ground had been prepared in the weeks before the Congress by Shuvalov and Salisbury. Again, though, such revelations were offset by the attention given to the Cyprus Convention, which the Crown Princess of Britain claimed was such a great event, since Lord Beaconsfield has restored to his country the prestige of power and dignity that it had lost on the continent. The language remained heavy with sentiment and rhetoric, especially when it was required to cover up compromises in Asia that Salisbury found he could evoke little or no sympathy for to combat the Russian claims. If they couldn't win every battle, they would at least make their actual victories as loud as possible. This, as Salisbury was perhaps beginning to understand, was Beaconsfieldism personified. Disraeli had given the people what they wanted, and now they adored him for it. Disraeli was able to return to 10 Downing Street in early July 1878 and announced that he had come from Berlin bringing peace with honour, a statement which, as Charmley noted, would have but one successor. Almost 60 years to the day that Neville Chamberlain would claim to have saved the peace of the world by compromising over Czechoslovakia, Disraeli would do the exact same thing. Chamberlain's failure is perhaps better documented, but that doesn't mean grave consequences were not in store for what had occurred in the Berlin Congress of 1878. Disraeli had gone to the Congress with three major aims, to preempt the creation of a new holy alliance between all of Europe by demonstrating British independence and power, to prevent Russian expansionism, and to increase British prestige and standing on the world stage. In all three of these aims, he certainly succeeded, and because he was able to present the entire venture as a case of us versus the foreigners, which the British public always found so compelling, the actual practical results could be turned into political capital for Disraeli as well as the Conservative Party. It also enabled his colleagues, chief among them Salisbury, to claim that Derby had been wrong and that had the former Foreign Secretary still been in place, such successes would never have come. Disraeli left Berlin having made a serious impression on Bismarck and the European community. Now those that had met him would understand that Britain was led by a strong leader and that the communiques which they received regarding British intentions and aims would have to be taken seriously. 
Disraeli had been welcomed home to a rapturous applause, with public adoration of his gains higher than ever before. Public opinion had swayed, so it seemed, firmly behind him and was now loyal to him because of his achievements. It would certainly have seemed close to vindication for the veteran Prime Minister, who had spent the previous years insisting to the likes of Lord Derby how valuable public support could be. Yet the rhetorical question Darby had asked in his April 8th speech, which we covered last week, wherein he had posed the question, How can they expect to have a foreign policy if within 18 months the great majority of them are asking for things which are directly contradictory? Is worth echoing. Darby had made the point therein that they, the British public, were by their very nature fickle, and that by pandering to them, Disraeli was venturing down a dangerous road. You could be successful, you could make them love you, but just like a superhero, in time they would turn on you when things don't go your way. As Darby and subsequent historians have recognised, Beaconsfieldism could be described in many words. It was the act of always giving the public what they wanted, or at least being seen to try. It was jingoism personified, and it meant that Disraeli was a slave to the whims of the people and the aggressive ambitions of their imaginations, so long as he wanted to retain their favour. British officials, through Beaconsfieldism, had been taught that ambition was a good thing, a resource to be cultivated and acted upon. The positivity and sense of invincibility, in the minds of some British officials, led them to do some fantastically careless things in the months immediately after the Congress. Perhaps they were secure in their belief that the home government wouldn't abandon them should they fall into trouble. Perhaps there was also the arrogant assurance, inherited from years of imperialism, which assured those officials undertaking such dangerous policies that, having taken on the almighty Russian bear and having won convincingly, no far-off backwater, no provincial wasteland or hostile tribe, was even worth considering as a threat. Before long, in regions long believed safe or at least momentarily pacified, this arrogance and carelessness would cause a series of fires that would reach all the way home to London, reducing to embers in the process not just Disraeli's tenure as Prime Minister, but also the policy of Beaconsfieldism and the very Conservative Party itself. Lord Derby, it seemed, would have the last laugh after all. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.